0: So, I want to start this morning with a question. How many of you have ever been to an awkward wedding? And you almost know, I love people raise their hands, like I have, (laughs) like people that you attended weddings of are here in the room, so don't raise your hand, it could have been them. I went to one this week, and it was a a lot of fun. We were excited going in because we knew the couple, Upon arriving, the wedding started, but it really didn't. We all sat down and waited for about 30 minutes before things actually got going. So we started it off with a bang. But then the ring bearer comes down the aisle, and he had to have been between two and three years old. So he's waddling his way down the middle. And this, this young man knew his job. He goes, I got a pillow. I'm starting right here, and I'm going to end over there. And someone's giving me a piece of candy. So he arrived at the front, and the bride and groom didn't look excited, they looked horrified. And I was like, this is awkward. But they were like, little buddy, where are the rings? And he was like, I don't know. And then he went and sat down. And so the bride and the groom are up at the front with no rings, and so the groom looks at his future father-in-law, and he goes, "Mm And so he like books it down the middle of the aisle and he's just throwing stuff in the back trying to find these rings. Two of the groomsmen get up. They leave. They go down the middle. They're hunting for stuff in the back. No one's finding a thing and so we're all sitting there in awkwardness which I don't handle very well but I was like, just stuff it, Tyler. But it got worse. (laughs) So they found the rings and the wedding continued and then the bride was doing personal vows and you never know what you're gonna get with personal vows but... She starts going, and she's holding her future husband's hand, and then a cell phone goes off. But it wasn't just anyone's cell phone. It was the groom's cell phone in his pocket. He carried it up with him. So he took it out, and he's fumbling with it. He dropped his bride's hand, so she's standing up there holding her vows, going, I've made a horrible error. (laughs) And so he hands his phone away, and the wedding continues, and all of us are thinking the exact same thing. This will be the coldest honeymoon ever, <laughs> ever. But the funny thing was, and any of you can attest to this, when you go to a wedding and there's funny things like that, nobody cares, because you're not there to judge the couple, you're there to celebrate with the couple, so we laughed those things off. And this wedding was just like that, because the bride was one of Audrey and I's former foster daughters. And so we were overjoyed at this wedding, because it's one thing, we, my wife and I operated a shelter for teen moms. It's one thing to pull one of those girls in, keep her safe, get her back on her feet, and then usually the relationship would end at that point. To get invited to one of their future weddings was huge. And so at the end of the wedding, there was a receiving line, and so we went up and we gave her a hug. Audrey was balling. I was close, but I wasn't yet, but then the bride got me, because I gave her a big hug and she goes, Tyler, before you guys go, you need to know, the only reason that I'm here, the only reason I want anything to do with marriage is because I watched your and Audrey's marriage and and I wanted that. And I watched your faith and God was a confusing thing and especially because all men had failed her. So the man that got her pregnant, he left and then her dad, upon finding out she was pregnant, kicked her out of the house and so all men were suspect to this young lady. And so she goes, when I met you and your wife, I was like, okay, there's safe men out there. And so more than that, like as we, and again, with that, I was just a puddle, but we, we talked a little bit more and then we went on our way and Audrey and I on the way home were just reflecting about this wedding and the level of provision from God that needed to occur for this young lady to be safe. That God met her where she was at And she doesn't have friends. She doesn't have family. She has nowhere to live. And then God introduces her to us. And she had a place to live for many years. And she got back on her feet. And then of all men that she could meet and date, she meets a man that loved Jesus, loved her, and adopted her little girl. It's one thing to fall in love with a woman. It's another thing to fall in love with her children that aren't yours. And so God provided lavishly for this young lady And just like there was awkwardness at that wedding, there's awkwardness in this wedding, but that's besides the point. The real point of this story is to answer the question, God, how do you provide? To back that question up a little bit, God, what motivates you at all to provide in the first place? Why are you, the creator of the universe, somehow concerned with the seemingly little things in my life? I'm one of eight billion people. God, why do you care about me? And assuming you do care, and assuming that you do provide, another question would be, how do I respond to that level of provision? And especially if you're here and you're wounded, because the first thought in your mind when you hear provision is God saying yes to other people, but he's not saying yes to me. You're deeply concerned with how God provides. And so we need to answer those questions this morning. God, what motivates you to provide? How do you provide? And assuming that you do, how do I, as one of your children, respond? And so we answer all of those questions here in this text, and our story begins with an invitation. The invitation is to Mary and to Jesus and his disciples. And so there's a number of interpretive issues in this story because John, he's a big picture kind of guy, like details. John's like, forget about him. I just need you to know that Jesus was there. And so he doesn't tell you who the couple was. I mean, if I was writing a story about a wedding, I would let you know at least the last name. But John's like, doesn't matter. So, they show up to this wedding, and here's what you can assume. And it's important for the story. You can assume that these people are good friends of Jesus and Mary. You don't show up to random strangers' weddings. You can assume that they know each other. And I would go a step further and say that you can very safely assume that these people are deeply connected to Mary specifically. Because when, any of you that have had a wedding, when something goes wrong, who do you tell? Do you stand up in front of everyone and all the guests and say, hey, I want to let you know what went wrong behind the scenes? No, you tell your family, you tell close friends, someone that can do something about it. And so there's a problem at this wedding, and it's that the wine is gone. And they tell Mary, so Mary is aware of this behind the scenes problem, and she needs to go try to solve it, which we'll get to in a minute. But really quick, just some cultural background. If you're invited to a wedding and you're in my day, you're giving up an afternoon. If you know the couple, maybe you're giving up the whole day. In Jewish culture, back here, you're giving up four to seven days. If you thought you knew how to party, you are wrong. The Jews absolutely nailed it and they party at their wedding for a week solid. The other thing that you need to be aware of is that at a wedding in ancient Israel, you are making a social contract with those involved. And so I, as the person having the wedding, hosting the wedding, I say to you, the guests, you are invited to essentially for this week be a part of my family. I will house you. I will give you food. I will give you wine, and we will celebrate. I will provide for you. You, the guests, tell me by your presence that you are accepting of this new couple being made, and you will do business with this couple. You will be hospitable towards this couple, and you'll invite them into the village life. And so to run out of wine is not simply to run out of the alcohol at the party. It is to run out of hospitality. So this is massive. If this couple indeed runs out of wine and the guests find out about it, this is utterly destructive for their family. The parents would be embarrassed. The couple would be potentially rejected from social norms. And so Mary, moved by compassion, runs to her son and says, Son, they've run out of wine and we need to do something about this. Now, before we get to the first question of what motivates God to provide, let's ask this question. Why does Mary go to her son at all? Why, do, why would you go to Jesus? He was a carpenter's son and learned the trade of his father, but he hasn't been doing work for a while. He's been moving around the region finding disciples. He hasn't even launched his ministry yet, so he's broke and he's not famous yet. So you're not going to Jesus because he's loaded, and you're like, run back into town and get some wine for us. Why would she go to him? Now, I humorously would like to believe that she went to him because he's done something like this before. I would love to believe that as a teenager, Joseph, his father, was pouring wine, and he runs out, and he's like, oh, man, we ran out of wine. And Jesus goes, did we, though? <laughs> did we? we? fill the wine back up now we don't have any evidence of this so i can't say if that did or did not happen but if you were a supernatural teenager what would you do you'd fill the wine back up regardless of why she did it here's what we know of mary she runs to jesus and she believes he can do something about this problem The same way we run to God in our desperation because we believe he can do something about it. And she runs to him and she says, they've run out of wine, we need to fix this. Now Jesus' response is seemingly somewhat insulting. Your Bible might say it this way. It says, woman, why do you involve me? Now if I responded that way to any of you ladies, that would be rude. And I would never do this in our culture. And so you might think Jesus was insulting his mom, but he's not. The language is actually far more gentle than that. It's just hard to translate that sentence into English. Here's a more gentle way of saying it. When she says, sweetheart, we've run out of wine, he would respond, miss, what would you like me to do about it? This is not the plan. And that's a huge detail in the story. You need to be aware that Mary's coming with a problem and she knows her son can do something about it, but what would that mean? If he does indeed do something supernatural, cat's out of the bag, Jesus at that point ceases to be a normal human being. His divine nature would be exposed and his ministry at that point would begin. This is almost like a Garden of Gethsemane moment and Jesus says to his mother, it's not the plan. Meaning, Jesus had a plan to announce who he was and what he was going to do later. Which brings to you an unbelievably beautiful moment. The plan of God was changed by the request of a human being. And so as you start thinking about your prayer life and you start asking about the connection that you have with God, what do you think about your prayers? What do you think about the plan of God? Do you think that God is so big and so other that he can't be bothered with the plans of little people such as ourselves? That he's working with governments and natural disasters and working with big ticket items and for you worrying about your children and the friends that they have, or you worrying about the aches and pains of your body, or you worrying about your neighbor or your boss's attitude, those are little things. We don't pray about those. Us serious Christians, we pray about the big things, not at all. No, when I look at God and I look at the connection that we have with our prayers, there is evidence in the past in scripture that reveals to you that God's plans are not so rigid that he won't change them for you. You see, one of the things that you need to be aware of in your relationship with God is that he so desperately wants to communicate with you and he promises you, if we're in community together, if we're talking, you and God, he says, I will change my plans for you because you matter. Now, this might bug some of you because it seems as if I'm suggesting that we're strong-arming God, manipulating God with our prayers. That's not the case. We can't tell God to do anything. But look at some examples with me of moments in the past where God has indeed changed his mind based on the words or actions of people. The first one would be Jonah chapter three, verse 10. Nineveh and its king were rebellious towards the Lord. They wanted nothing to do with God and his reign. And so God goes to Jonah and he says, go preach to these people. Now he does eventually And it says this in verse 10, that when God saw what they did and how they, the king and his people, turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had planned. God had a plan and people said words of repentance And God changes his plan. Here's another example. Jeremiah 26.3, God had plans to bring disaster on Israel, but says that if they would listen and turn from their wicked ways, he will hold back punishment. He'll change. The plan has changed. Here's the third example, Exodus 32.14. Moses goes up the mountain, gets the 10 commandments, comes back down. What are the people doing? They're worshiping a golden cow. And God is furious and says in that moment, I will destroy all of you. And Moses drops to his knees, begins praying, and says, Lord, would you remember your promises as if the sovereign God of the universe forgets anything? What was the lesson that he's learning? God, my words, my life matter to you. And as I begin praying, I can indeed ask for things in humility, knowing that God can say yes or no, and we'll get to that in a minute. But how many times have you not prayed Or ceased praying because you thought that it was too insignificant for God to care. Which would be so sad to me because how many of you parents, how would not your heart be broken if you discovered that your children weren't relaying information to you because they thought you didn't care? If your kids were like, well, I was gonna tell you, but then I figured you probably don't care, you'd be shattered. Like my little girl runs up to me the other day and she had a broken green crayon in her hands and she goes, dad, I was, I was finishing this picture and I was coloring the princess and then her, I was doing her dress and the crayon broke and now I don't know what to do. And I was like, sweetheart, I will buy all the green crayons on earth if it means my little girl is satisfied again and gets to finish the picture. Did I move in that way because I care about green crayons? No, I care about Claire. She matters to me. And the second you begin thinking that you are too small or insignificant for God, the cosmic creator of the universe, to not care about you, you've made a mistake. You've made an error. You've begun thinking in an arrogant way that you can tell God what matters and what doesn't by the fact of not praying or praying. And so what this is revealing to you is what actually matters to the Lord. Anything that matters to you. Think about this miracle for a second. Think about what it is. It's wine. This is a non-essential item. Now, I know some of you are gonna fight me on that, but wine is a non-essential item. <laughs> Think about other miracles that God has done. He, did the, he took five loaves and two fish and supernaturally generated food for 5,000 people plus. That's a miracle. And it's sustenance. It's food. They needed it. They were tired and hungry because the pastor was going too long, like I probably will today. And they needed food and God provided it. But this is a wedding. It's a celebration. And it's wine, non-essential. And God creates excess. Now, think about this one. This is going to mess with some of your theology for a second. God doesn't make wine because they had none. God made wine because they ran out. So there's people at this wedding that were already drunk. And God made more wine. So let that one sink in. I'm gonna let you fight about that on the way home. (laughs) You see, God has given you invitations all throughout scripture relaying to you that he loves you, you are his child and he wants to answer your questions. For example, there is James chapter four, verse three. It says, you do not have because you don't ask. Some of you are indeed going through some incredible things, difficult things, hard things, confusing things, but you're not engaging the Lord in prayer. You're just sitting worrying about it. And God says, you're my daughter. Why would I not be concerned with it? You're my son. Why wouldn't I care? But you're not talking with me. So I'm not gonna force my hand on you. I'll wait till you wanna converse with me. Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about what? Anything. But in every situation, underline that in your Bible if you are okay writing in it. In every situation, by prayer and petition, make known what is worrying your heart and God will move. He's relaying to you that there's no issue, however small you think it is, that he won't care about because if it matters to you, it matters to him. And this is, uh, imagine if you were married, if you only started talking to your spouse when things were unbelievably difficult, if there was a a traumatic event and then you talked. But you never talked about the wins. You never flirted. You never talked about the the small things. You never talked about the small um, annoyances. There, There was no communication at all. And you only talked when things were huge and dramatic, how healthy would your marriage be? I would argue it wouldn't be. And yet with the Lord, sometimes we, we think that we can think for him and we're like, well, he's not going to care about this. Yes, he will. Because if it matters to you, it matters to him. Now, we, we know that what moves God to provide is the requests of his children. That was point number one. But how does God provide? How many of you have been to a Christmas gathering, a family, or you've been to a birthday party and you've got that person in your family, don't look around because they could be here, but you know they're horrible at giving gifts. And by their provision of gift, they've revealed to you that you don't matter. Like they don't think through it. They get you clothes that don't fit. They get you food items that you don't even like. They get you items from stores you know where they bought it from and it's cheap. You're like, thank you for this piece of trash that I will throw away 20 minutes after we leave here. And they've revealed to you by their provision that they don't actually care about you, they're not thinking about you. Is God that way? Is he so big and so other that he's not aware of your name, your likes, your dislikes, the small prayers that you pray when you're completely by yourself? Is he aware or not? He is aware, and I would argue this morning that when he gives, he's unbelievably lavish. He's not like that family member that shows you a gift and you're like, wow, that means almost nothing to me. When God gives, when he moves, when he changes things, it's always a big deal. He is lavish in what he does. Now, the pushback that you might give me is you're like, well, excuse me, before we get to this, think about the story for a second. Look at what Jesus does in this moment. John doesn't tell you who the couple is, but he does tell you how many jars were in the side room which is odd to me. He's like, there were six of them. And you're like, K, why does that matter? He's like, not only were there six, there were 20 to 30 gallons each. Why does he tell you? Because he needs you to know not just that wine was created, he needs you to know how much wine was created. Otherwise he would have said that God, or Jesus knew there wasn't wine, so he made wine, the people celebrated, and the wedding moved on, but he doesn't say that. He said Jesus made a massive amount of wine With all those jars, Jesus could have made anywhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And he didn't just make wine, he made good wine. And there's a difference, not that I would know, I just read about it in a book. (laughs) Wink. Some of the wine was later poured out to the master of ceremonies. He would be like an ancient wedding planner. And he's actually distraught. He goes, this is incredible. Where did this come from? And they're like, we have no idea. And he calls for the groom and chews him out because he goes, look, you know better. You know that the good wine is served first. And then we serve the garbage stuff when everyone is full or drunk. What are you doing? You brought the good stuff out at the end. The groom has no idea where the wine came from. So feel bad for that guy because he's getting chewed out for no reason. Jesus needs you to know the amount and he needs you to know the quality of the wine. Why does he want to teach you this? Because when Jesus says yes, it's lavish. And as I was about to say earlier though, some of you might push back and you're like, well, sure, he's lavish to them. He said yes to them, but he didn't say yes to me. He told me no. He told me to wait. But can I, can I push back for a second? Can God be as lavish with his no as he is with his yes. Absolutely. Ask any young couple that struggles with infertility. They had a dream that they would get married, that they would have children together, that they would raise those children as their parents raised them. And then they discover through the first few, few months or years of their marriage, my body is not working like other people's bodies and I'm unable to have children. God, why would you say no to me? Like, talk to that young woman about why her body's not working. There's nothing to say other than to sit with her and grieve with her. But here's the deal. Ask that same woman years down the road after she has adopted children how she feels about the no of God. Ask those young children that were adopted, had their last name changed and gained a new future. Ask them what they think about the yes or no of God. You see, if we make the mistake because we're so close to an issue that we can look at something and go, that's bad, God did it or didn't do it, so he's in the wrong. We've made a horrible mistake that we in our fallen nature, our broken minds, our inability to see a few years down the road that we would yell at God and say, you've made an error. No, he didn't. Because here's what God did. In his ability to look outside of time, he saw a little girl that had a drug-addicted mother that never would have raised her, that potentially would have wounded her, and so God says, I will save you, and I'm going to go to this couple and tell them, your womb is closed so I can open your heart to that little girl or little boy or siblings, and you will rescue them is God not kind? Is he not lavish with his no just as he is with his yes? There's just certain moments where you need to grow in your maturity as a Christian to realize, yes, it's a no right now, but it's for a yes later. Or maybe it's a no for you, but a yes for somebody else. Are we so arrogant that we would look at the nose of God and say, you've done me wrong? No, let's not do that together. I had a friend Uh, that I met with a few weeks ago and we had worked together for a number of years. I didn't really know him very well, but I knew enough to know that he wasn't a Christian when we uh, originally met. And he self-admittedly had made a number of mistakes in his life. He'd mistreated women, he'd mistreated money, he'd mistreated his bosses and was just living generally for himself. And so we met by chance at a a, a conference for counselors and so he saw me and he's like, he's like, Tyler, it's been a long time, can we meet I'd love to share my story with you and I go I'd be honored. Let's let's hang out. So we went and we had coffee together and he relayed his testimony to me. And he goes he goes, "Tyler, what's crazy to me is that I rejected the Lord completely, but then I met a young lady who's now my wife and I started falling in love with her and she goes, "We should be, you know, one of those couples that goes to church." And he was like, "I don't really want to, but you're pretty, so yes." Ladies, I don't suggest you do this, but in this case it worked out. But they go to church and the pastor absolutely floored him with the wisdom of God. And he goes home and he goes, sweetheart, we're we're doing it wrong. We we are living life in rebellion against the creator of the universe. And I believe that we are insulting him by what we're doing. We need to change. And so he proposed to her and he married her and he had children with her and he changed his job and he started going to a local church in town and submitted to their pastor and their leadership. He found a mentor, but he goes to the mentor and he says, look, I love the Lord, but I don't know how to be a God honoring man. Would you teach me? And this man said, absolutely, I'd be honored. And so he was like, what what do I do then? How do I be a good Christian man? And the man said, well, first thing, we don't hide sin. We don't bury it because we're afraid of the consequences. So we're gonna, is there any person that you've wronged? Is there any sin that you're covering up? And he goes, yeah, yeah, there's a big one. He goes, when I was working for a company in town, I stole a huge amount of money from them and I hid it and they never caught me. And he goes, okay, first thing that you need to do right now is you need to go to that couple and you need to repent and you need to tell them what you did. And the amount of money that he stole was enough to put him in prison for quite a long time. And so he goes, if this is what I need to do to honor the Lord, this is what I'm going to do. And so he goes to the couple and he says, hey, do you remember me? And they go, yeah, kind of hard to forget. And he goes, I stole a huge amount of money from you. Would you please allow me to pay it back? And I will write you a check every month. And they said, okay. That was the first provision of God that he's not spending the next few decades in prison. And... So he started paying it back. This was a few years ago. He made regular monthly installments and then we met and he was relaying a story to me and I was so appreciative of not only what God did but the courage of this young man, the humility of this young man. So I just started, I, I told him in that moment, I was like, we need to worship. We need to honor the Lord for what he's done. I just feel like God needs to be praised right now for what he's done in your life. And so he goes, okay, let's pray. And so we just sat in a coffee shop at a table just worshiping and I I was in the prayer, I just felt like God was saying, now bless him even more. And I said, Kay, I was like, Lord, would you unlock the doors of your financial blessing on this young man? Would you show him your goodness, your kindness? I wasn't even praying for the debt. I just said, would you bless him? And so prayer ended, he leaves, I leave. He calls me the next day and he goes, Tyler, do you remember the prayer that you prayed? And I go, my memory's not great, but it's not that bad. Yes, I remember the prayer that I prayed yesterday. He goes, you're not gonna believe this. But I went to the couple's house and I was gonna give them the next check. I did that yesterday. And they responded to me. They said, we feel like God is saying that you're done with your debt. So we're gonna wipe it out. You don't owe us any more money. And I said, that's incredible. How how much did you owe, if you don't mind me asking? And he goes, tens of thousands of dollars. But it's gone. You see, your God is lavish He's not cheap. He's not arrogant. He's not short-sighted. He looks at you and he goes, I will profoundly bless you with yeses and I will profoundly bless you, maybe sometimes even more, with noes or with wait. But the last question that we need to ask is, God, why do you do this? Why do you operate this way? Why do you look at some of us and give us yeses and you look at others and you say no? Why do I sometimes need to wait and other times things go very, very fast? It's a good question because God sometimes can be confusing. However, he tells you exactly why he does everything that he does in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why does God do anything that he does? Yeses, knows, waits. Chiefly, he does it to reveal his glory that you would understand you're a human And he's God. And there's a massive difference. And so the first part of this puts me in my place. It puts you in your place. And we understand his vastness. You need to see this. The disciples needed to see it. But there's another reason why he does what he does. To transform you. It's to make you different. You see, God is so vast that he would create billions upon billions of stars that all work in perfect sync and orbit. He's fine-tuned enough to deal with DNA, but he's personal enough to know you and your name and the issues that matter to you. He's also personal enough to realize exactly where you are and knows where he needs to take you. Which means your faith needs to have room in it for a God that tells you yes and a God that tells you no. For a God that gives and a God that takes. Because if you believe that God only provides to bring about ease in your life, you're worshiping an idol. You're not worshiping the Lord. Because God, as beautifully in a yes, can work in a no and take things from you. And you need to ask yourself the question, do I worship as passionately when God tells me no? as I do when he tells me yes? Do I stop going to home group when things aren't going my way? Do I stop regular prayer and intimacy with God and Bible reading when he's confusing to me as if he needs to prove all of his works before I move forward? Like maybe you're sitting there and you're like, look, I'm not rejecting God as in losing my faith, but I'll just kind of attend church. I won't allow worship to move me I won't take initiative and move into kingdom impactful ministries. I'll just sit because God's not doing what I want him to do. But God looks at you and he says, look, you need to be transformed. You need to be different. I had one of, one of my fellow staff members joking with me when I talked about the prayer that I prayed for my friend. And he goes, can you pray that same prayer for me? Like just like doors open, money drops. Like I, w- I would love that prayer. But as I was thinking about this, how many of you, and obviously don't raise your hand, this is rhetorical, but how many of you are financially struggling, and you've been praying for a while that God would turn things around, that he would give you money, and God says no. And you've been wondering why, could it be that God is more concerned with you growing a heart of generosity more than he is that you would be financially comfortable I've heard this, and I've got some of the most amazing, incredible, generous young adults, but I've run into a number of young adults that say, look, when I get my big boy job, when I get my career, then I'll give. And so God says, no, that's not how it works. I'm not gonna unlock financial blessing on someone that is greedy. I'm not gonna unlock financial blessing on someone that is misusing my money and is manipulative with people. And so God says, some of you shall remain poor. God goes, I will strip you of all comfort and wealth if it means that you will turn and repent. If it means that you will finally decide that God matters first, his church matters first, and then we're gonna move in other financial directions. Or some of you are praying, and you've been praying for a long time that God would heal you. You're sick, you're hurting, and God has looked at you, and by nature of still being sick, he has said no. No. And, and you, you start to argue with them and say, well, God, I'm your servant. Wouldn't it be better if I was healthy? I could do more. And God says, I don't need you to do more. You have nothing to prove to me. He goes, what I care about more is your prayer life. I care more about a heart of dependence than I do a healthy body. And so I would rather you get on your knees and begin conversing with me. And so I will strip you of physical comfort so that you learn to pray. Or some of you are waiting for a child to come back to church. You're, you're waiting for that prodigal to repent and, and come back. And so, and again, you argue with God. You're like, would it not be better, Lord, if they were worshiping you? And God goes, well, of course it would. But I don't need them right now. I'll work on them later. I'm still breaking them down. But God looks at you and he says, I care more that you build a routine with me than I do that your son comes back to church. And that is not to say that he doesn't love your son. It's not to say that he doesn't love your daughter. But you've been praying and then there's certain moments where you're so tired and you're so angry that you just stop. You're like, I'm I'm done. And it's in that moment, exactly that moment that you need to start again. Because God says, I want to meet with you. Talk with me. See, when I start rejecting the Lord, I learn something about myself. I reject him because he's not behaving in the way I think he should. He should. And so God looks at you and your view of God, your faith needs to leave room for a God that says, look, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to transform you. I'm gonna take a greedy man and I'm gonna make him unbelievably generous. I'm gonna take a bitter, hurting woman and I'm gonna turn her into an invitational beauty. I'm gonna take a family that never talks to each other and through financial brokenness or through the death of a loved one, I will knit you back together. How many families have been restored because someone else in the family died? How many times has God been working on you? And the funny thing is, just like in this story, the miracle that occurs isn't even for the couple. The work that God's doing in you right now might not even be for you. Look at the story. Water was turned into wine for a couple that didn't know the wine was out. They still don't know. The groom gets chewed out by the party planner. He has no idea where it came from. The parents don't know. Party planner himself doesn't know. And the guests don't know. You see, a lot of the commentaries I read said that this was Jesus' first public miracle. No, it wasn't. If it was his first public one, he did a bad job. He performs the miracle, and the only people that know are the disciples, the servants in the house, and Mary. And his disciples come to him later, and what does it say in the text? It says that they believed him. So God brought about a potential social bad moment for this couple to train his men i am more than just a man i can change the laws of nature and on a molecular level change water into wine and it says in that moment they believed in him so how many of you are going through something right now and you're like god why me and god says it's not about you it's about your neighbor it's it's not about you it's about your boss it's not about you it's about your children and they need to see how mom and dad are gonna handle an unbelievably difficult circumstance. They need to see that dad's not gonna quit. They need to see that dad's gonna pull people, pull his family to church. They need to see that mom's not, not gonna get angry and bitter. It's not about you. Your God is interested in your transformation, not your comfort. There are moments where he will make things more comfortable and that's beautiful. All the more praise to him. But you need to remember that God's end goal is his glory and your transformation, which means that he will stop at nothing, whether it's a yes or a no, to see that you are more like Jesus at the end of the day. So the last thing that I'll say is some of you have been praying for something for a long time. And you're in a season right now where you stopped and you're tired. And if the people in this room knew just how, how much you've slugged it out in prayer with God, you'd be like, maybe then they would understand. And it's like, that, it's not about that. This is God's gentle way this Sunday morning to tell you that he sees you. He does love you. He is moved by the pleas of his children, just like any of us parents are. And he wants you to keep praying. So don't give up. God sees all of the little things. The things that you think are insignificant aren't. Because if it matters to you, it matters to him. Any real encounter with Jesus will ultimately lead to your transformation.